The terminal from the place to our Bible reading that we shared together in First Chronicles chapter 17. And we're going to look today at the words of verse 16. First Chronicles chapter 17. And let's read together verse 16. And David the king came and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is mine house that thou hast brought me hitherto? Amen. Let's just pause for prayer. Let's seek the face of the Lord and ask God's blessing uh, today. Let us all pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank thee for thy presence in our service thus far. We thank thee for the privilege of reading the book of God, singing these old uh, psalms and hymns of Zion. And we thank thee for the spirit already in the midst. And as we come to the word of the Lord, and as we seek to understand its message, we pray that thou, the spirit of God, will continue to work. Be thou our eyes of today. Touch these eyes of ours. Touch these hearts of ours. And lead us to Christ the crucified. And teach us again something today about amazing grace. Hear us, we do beseech thee. And bless us as we wait before thee. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Reverend John Newton, who was the author of the hymn that we've just sung, he was a very prolific hymn writer, but undoubtedly his most famous composition was Amazing Grace. And if you take time to study out the story uh, behind Amazing Grace, it's just amazing as the actual words. In fact, the whole hymn reflects the spiritual experience, not only of John Newton, but the grace of God in the lives of all of the people of God. Throughout his 82-year-old life, he had a wide, varied experience of life. He was born on the 24th of July, 1725, in London. His mother was a very godly lady, but his father was a drunkard. He was a sailor and an ungodly man. And when Newton was only six years of age, his mother died. But I want you mothers to get this. The influence of those first six years in his life were never let lost. And Newton never lost the value of those first six years of a godly mother. And her spiritual impact uh, influenced the rest of his pilgrimage. At 18 years of age, Newton was pressed into naval service. And in the Navy, uh, as we say, he sunk deep into sin. In his own memoirs, he said, of those years I was capable of anything. I had not the least fear of God before my eyes, nor, as far as I remember, the least sensibility of conscience. When people lose their conscience, they lose everything. And Newton lost it in those late teenage years. When he was 20 years of age, he was put off his ship, we're told, on some small islands uh, just on the southeast of Sierra Leone off the coast of West Africa. And there he lived for a year and a half as a virtual slave himself in destitute circumstances. 
Later on in life he marveled at how God and providence arranged that a ship would put anchor uh, just beyond where the islands were. And when they saw uh, the smoke rising from the island, uh, they came ashore. And the ship's captain providentially knew Newton's father and was able to free him from his bondage in February uh, 1747. He was just 21 years of age. What a life he'd lived, and he'd only saw 21 years of age. The ship, of course, had further business on the sea, and it went on for over a year. But on the 21st of March, 1748, on the return journey uh, back to England in the North Atlantic, Newton uh, awoke to a violent storm as his room and the ship began to fill with water. And, of course, it was all hands on deck, and all men to the pump room. And as he worked at the pumps, he prayed for the first time from childhood. And what did he pray? Lord, have mercy upon us. And he recorded many years later, that was the first time he had expressed the need for mercy from his childhood years. Uh, the story goes they worked at the pumps from three in the morning until noon. Uh, John Newton then went to sleep for an hour and he took over the helm of the ship to steer it through the storm until the midnight hour. And at that wheel he began to reflect upon his life, on his pilgrimage, on his spiritual condition. And he narrates that that was the beginning of his conversion to Christ. It was the beginning of God doing something in his life. And you know, sometimes that is often the case. God has to bring us to the very brink of eternity itself, to death itself, before we will reflect on what lies up ahead for us. For six years after that, he became the captain of a slave trading ship, and he went to sea until 1749. Now, in his mature years, he, he regretted bitterly his involvement in the slave trade. And that was why he joined uh, his great friend Wilbur, William Wilberforce in opposing it. If you want a good read over the summertime when you're on holiday, go and get the story of William Wilberforce and it will bless your heart and bless your life. For a few years I thought, I believed that Christians ought not to be in politics because of all of the stuff that happened in our own land. But when I read the story of William Wilberforce, I realised again, God has his people right across the whole broad strata of society. And Wilberforce was able to make such a huge difference in his day and in succeeding days and generations. 30 years after leaving the slave trade, he wrote a very famous essay, Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade, and it contained the following, a commerce so iniquitous, so cruel, so oppressive, so destructive as the African slave trade. In 1764, he had already trained to be a minister and accepted the call to be the pastor of the Church of England parish in Olney, a very small place at that time. And he was there for 16 years. And at the age of 54, in case some of you in those uh, mature years are thinking of changing career, at 54 years of age, he accepted the call to St. Mary's in London, where he had a further 27 years of ministry until 1779. That wouldn't do in the Free Church. They would have had you retired off long before that. 
He was married to Mary, uh, devoted to her for 40 years until she died. He was friends of John Wesley of the great George Whitfield, a lifelong companion with those in the political arena who fought with William Wilberforce to see the abolition of slavery. It's a great story. And I commend it to uh, your reading over and over the summer months. But one of the most touching aspects of John Newton's life was his tender care for the very famous English poet William Cowper, or Cooper, as some people pronounce it, probably more correctly than the way we uh, pronounce it. William Cooper battled with depression, dark, dark periods in his life. He couldn't function on his own. And so John Newton opened up his manse to him and him and his wife Mary looked after him. For sometimes he was there for months on end. At one period he spent some 14 months in his home. It was said of Newton's home that his house was an asylum for the perplexed or the afflicted. And as uh, William Cowper and uh, Newton were such close friends, they were both great poets and they wrote many hymns. In that only hymn book, there are some 300 different hymns. Now, Newton penned the majority of them. And his idea was that he would, him and Cowper would write a hymn per week. Per week. And that would help the congregation to understand the text that he was preaching on. He wrote many of them, but... We sang his most famous one of all. I think there are about 11 in our own hymn book. You can look them up, but they're all a blessing. And we've sung many of them in the days that have gone by. But the hymn that we sang, Amazing Grace, was penned to accompany our text in First Chronicles chapter 17 and verse 16. King David, in this chapter, he had, he had a vision in his mind that he wanted to Build a house for the Lord. God had established his kingdom and his throne. And now he wanted to build a, a, a temple for the worship of God in the land of Israel. And Nathan the prophet came to hear him what he had to say. Uh, and Nathan of course was encouraged in what he had to say. But God spoke to Nathan in the hours of the night. And God said go back to King David and tell him. No you're not the man to build the temple. But I'm going to build you a legacy. And I'm going to build you a house that will stand when your name is no longer here. And that's why we read in this text that David, when he heard the words of Nathan the prophet, he just stood amazed at the grace of God. And thus Newton put it all together, amazing grace. And just like Newton, just like David, just like all of the believers who have gone before us, you and I stand today once again amazed at the grace of God. It is a wonder, a wonder of eternity that God ever looked upon us or God ever visited us or God ever put his love even upon us. Oh, the wonder of amazing grace. I, I want to stop with you today at this text, First Chronicles 17, 16. I found Newton's hymn, but I couldn't find a sermon on the text. But I pray that our meditations will be blessed of God to your own soul today. That the Lord will encourage every Christian. If God has given you grace today, he'll give you grace to finish the journey. 
And for those that are still unconverted, may the Lord speak into your heart and may you know today a visitation of grace and salvation in your own soul and in your own life. So firstly, let's notice together the surprising nature of grace. This is something that has really struck me over the past week. David, he he came and he sat before the Lord and that was in the sanctuary where he had put the the Ark of the Covenant uh, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? We often think of that word grace but sometimes we, we don't think through what the word actually means. Grace means the unmerited, the undeserved favor of Almighty God. It's the act of God's will. It's the disposition of God's mercy and favor toward us. None of us were born with grace in our souls. That's something that I want you to understand and I want you to get into your heart and life today. You and I were not born with grace in our souls. The very opposite. Grace is something that God brings to us. Grace is something that God bestows upon us. When David thought upon what God had promised his family, because God had promised to perpetuate the dynasty of his name and his royal household, he was astonished. He was surprised. And he just sat there before the Lord and he said, Well, Lord, who am I? He knew himself to be something that was undeserving of such grace. We read those great penitential psalms, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, Psalm 51 and verse 5. David said, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What a humbling thought. We weren't born with sin. We weren't born with grace in our soul. We were born with with sin in our soul. We're just sinful creatures. David thought of the lowly background that he came from. He was just uh, the son of a, of a farmer from the fields around Bethlehem. The son of Jesse. When Samuel the prophet met him and anointed him to be king, he was just a shepherd boy. He was just looking after those few sheep that his elder brother reproached him with on the hillsides. He knew himself to be unworthy. Why? Who am I, Lord? That I would be included in in the lineage of the great seed that was to come. Not just the royal house of David. But the royal house of King David's greater son. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who am I to be linked with Christ? And that's, that's how the New Testament opens up. Matthew 1 and 1. We read the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. And what's the first linkage? The son of David. Isn't it amazing? That's why David just stood back and he said, Who am I? Who, who are we, brethren and sisters? That God would ever look upon us and unite us with his Son and unite our name with his Son for all of God's great eternity. Who are we? David knew that because of God's grace he had received that which he didn't deserve. He didn't deserve the crown. The crown belonged to Saul. Why would God take the crown from Saul and place it on the young head of David? But God had placed it on his head. And God said that he would bless his succeeding generations. 
And that's why I think he wrote those words in, in Psalm 8 and verse 4 that we used as our opening praise today. What is man that thou art mindful of him, the son of man that thou visitest him? What is man? What is man that God would ever look upon us? Because we receive what we don't deserve. In the redeeming purposes of God, those of us who are saved, we surely didn't get what we deserved. We were only worthy of condemnation. We were deserving of damnation. But instead God has crowned us with salvation. David got what he didn't deserve. One biblical commentator put it like this. It's very well. It very well becomes the greatest and the best of men. Even in the midst of the highest achievements. To have low and mean thoughts of themselves. For the greatest of men are worms. The best are sinners. And those that are the highest have nothing but what they have received. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. But now I'm found. Was blind but now I see. As Christians today. We meet together in this house. For public worship. And we freely and frankly acknowledge. That what you and I have received. We didn't deserve. We obtained mercy. Whilst all the time deserving of judgment. All who have truly known God. Have ever sought to be such. Jacob knew how undeserving he was. Just let me remind you what he said in Genesis 32 and verse 10. He said, I am not worthy of the least of all of the mercies and of the truth which thou hast showed toward thy servant. Are we worthy of the least of God's mercies? And yet God has bestowed upon us his highest mercy. Job, like David in Psalm 8 said in Job 7 and 17, What is man that thou shouldest magnify him, that thou shouldest set thine heart upon him? I've thought about that little phrase all week. What is man that God should set his heart upon him? Paul's great confession of demerit is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10. He said, I am the least of the apostles. That I'm not meet to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. But I laboured more abundantly than they all. Yet not I but the grace of God which was with me. I want every believer today just to stop on this Sabbath day. And I want you to ponder just how surprising is grace. God gives us what we didn't deserve. Secondly, I want you to notice with me the span, or we could say the scope of grace. David acknowledged in this text, 1 Chronicles 17 and verse 16, uh, who am I, O Lord God, and what is mine house that thou hast brought me hither to? It just simply means here to this place. David acknowledges uh, the goodness of God, the grace of God, in bringing him to where he was. And it's good to look back and it's good to trace the grace of God in your own life. And then it's good to trace the goodness and the grace of God in 
the life of your family. And so many can look back to childhood days and youth and, and trace God's grace and God's goodness. It was, with, it was so with David. It was so with John Newton. And I stopped to think about my own life. It was so in my own experience. I went to visit an aged uncle this week. We're reminiscing of, of years that have gone by. And I thank God not just for parents who were saved. I thank God for grandparents who were saved. For great grandparents who were saved. We serve a covenant God. Grace that spans the generations. And yet it goes way, way beyond back. I can only go back. I've said to you many times. I wish I could go back further. But I can only go back maybe three or four generations in my own family tree. How quickly we forget and how quickly history is buried and forgotten, unfortunately. But this span of grace, where does it go to? It goes right back to eternity. In Psalm 139, verse 5 and 6, David wrote, Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Now think on that. He said he, he thanked God for bringing him to where he was. And he thanked God for bringing him. So that's the past to where he was. That's the present. Uh, but now in Psalm 139 verse 5. He's looking to the future. Past, present and future. Is the scope of the grace of God. Remember the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. In John's gospel chapter 17 verse 5 and 6. Jesus prayed, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Now listen, thine they were. And thou gavest them me. And they have kept thy word. We don't trace back the origin of our salvation to the moment that we believed and received the gospel for ourselves, that wouldn't even be half the picture, uh, dear believer. To get an overall view, we, we go back to John 17. The word of God traces it back to what's called the great council chambers of eternity, which was held amongst the persons of the, of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in that great council, uh, the economy of redemption and the division of labor, it was all agreed. The Father to be the originator of salvation. The Son to be the executor of salvation. The Spirit to be the applier of salvation. Amazing. Amazing as it may seem today. But in a way, a way back in that eternal council chamber of God. Your salvation and my salvation originated. That's why we read Second Timothy. 1 verse 8 and 9. This is what Paul said to young Timothy. Don't be ashamed of me the prisoner. But be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. According to the power of God. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works. But according to his own purpose and grace. Which was given us in Christ. Before the world began. We, I, I do not understand people who deny the reality of those words. The grace 
of salvation was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And it's just humbling today. It's not something that makes you puffed up and be, be proud about. It's just so humbling today to think, who am I? That away back in that great council chamber of eternity, God put his electing love upon me. He brought me to himself. David acknowledged the grace that would keep his family in the days ahead. Verse 23 and verse 24. Of this lovely chapter. He said. Therefore now Lord. Let the thing that thou hast spoken. Concerning thy servant. And concerning his house. Be established. Forever. And do as thou hast said. That's what prayer is. Prayer is just bringing back. The promises of God to him. And saying to God. Do as thou hast said. Couldn't be any clearer. Let it even be established. That thy name may be magnified forever. Saying. The Lord of hosts is the God of Israel. Even a God to Israel. And let the house of David thy servants be established before thee. You know God's grace teaches us not only about the hitherto. But it teaches us about the until then. The same grace which inscribed our name in God's eternal book. Will supply the early needs along the, the pilgrim's pathway. He'll never let us go. In Newton's original hymn, there were only six verses. That seventh verse was added in by somebody else. It's a lovely verse, but it's not Newton's. The sixth verse was his final one. And it says, The earth shall soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbear to shine. But God, who called me here below, will be forever mine. In heaven, we're going to look back and they will understand it as we've never understood it here below. The scope, the span of God's amazing grace. I want you to notice thirdly the source of this grace. Look at verse 19 of this wonderful chapter. O Lord, for thy servant's sake and according to thine own heart hast thou done all this greatness in making all these great things. Oh, the wonder of it all. This amazing grace that comes from the heart of God. Spurgeon was writing in this sermon, he said, Whenever the believer asks why God gave him grace in Christ Jesus, he can only resort to one answer. The Lord's own heart has devised and ordained it. It comes from the heart of God. There's no human explanation for it. Who am I? Who are we today? We're, we're nobodies. We're, we're, we're nothing. There's no human explanation for it. All that God does for his people in his providences, all that God pledges to his people in his promises is for his pleasure, is for his good pleasure. This amazing grace from the heart of God, it reaches the heart of men. Such grace was revealed to David. Remember that. And how was it revealed to David? By Nathan the prophet. Amazed at the revelation of God through Nathan the prophet. Uh, David embraced and believed it as never before. 
People say today, how does this wonderful grace reach his people? Well, we talk, don't we, about the means of grace. And, and yet we sometimes, inadvertently, sometimes, by default, we, we, we undervalue the means of grace. We're sitting in the means of grace today. Where prayer is wont to be made, where prayer... Where praise is offered to Almighty God. Where the word of God is read and preached. Brethren and sisters. Those are the primary means of grace. And it's through those means. That God's wonderful grace. Touches hearts and touches lives. And changes hearts and changes lives. That lovely hymn. 207 in our book it says. It reaches me. It reaches me. Wondrous grace it reaches me pure exhaustless ever flowing wondrous grace it reaches me has it reached you today Jesus said to his disciples John thirteen nineteen. now I tell you before it came that when it has come to pass ye may believe that I am he none of you none, I know you all today none of you and on alone can say that you have never been told but have you believed? And you'll never believe in the grace of God until you let go of your own self-righteousness, your own self-merit. Self-merit can never save. It's not on your merit that you're going to get to heaven. All your church going, all your paying in, all of your good works, all of your Sabbath attendance, all of your own self-merit will never get you to glory. It's only Christ's merit. And upon the life he lived, upon the death he died, is your only merit before God to be found. And the gospel calls you today to believe it, receive it, and you'll be saved. Wondrous grace, it reaches me. When David pondered such grace, verse 18 tells me he was lost for words. His lips were, were speechless. He said, what can David speak more? And yet, in these words, he, he reveals the impact of grace. Because he said, he refers to himself as God's servant. The sovereign king of Israel, bowing in servitude to the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords. I don't know what else we as Christians can do today when God reveals his grace, when God manifests his grace toward us. What else can we do today but to acknowledge him as sovereign Lord and King of our lives and to place our lives afresh and anew at his disposal? Maybe you've been battling something in your own heart and mind over the past weeks, maybe months. Maybe the Lord's been asking you to do something and you've been refusing to do it. Maybe there's some simple command that God has given to you and you've ignored it. Well, you're before the King of Kings today, the Lord of Lords. You're before the one who has bestowed upon you matchless grace. Matchless grace requires submission. John Newton, at the end of his pilgrimage, he, he was still amazed at grace. Short time before he died, this is what he wrote when he 
was commenting on 1 Corinthians 15 and 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He said, I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect, undeficient, 82 years of age. I am not what I might be, considering all of my privileges and opportunities. I am not what I wish to be. God who knows my heart knows I wish to be like him. I am not what I hope to be. But before long, I will drop this clay tabernacle to be like him and see him as he is. And yet I am not what I once was, a child of sin and a slave of the devil. By the grace of God, I am what I am. For he died, his, his memory was nearly gone. His eyesight was gone. But he said, there's two things that I remember. And you write them in your Bible and you remember them. This was John Newton's a summary of all the great theology and the hymns and the great legacy that he's left the church. He said, two things, I am a great sinner. But I know Christ is a greater saviour. It doesn't matter how great your sin is today. Grace is bigger than your sin because Christ is a great saviour. And if you know nothing else, when, like Newton, you come to cross over Jordan into Emmanuel's land, may you know in your heart and in your life the reality that though I am a great sinner, Christ is a great saviour. And his grace has reached me.